0: 1 Peter has been a book about suffering and trials and difficulties. And there's a sense in which we don't feel the weight of what Peter is saying because of where we live and this this time in history. And so I don't want to cheapen 1 Peter by making thin, cheap applications to how, you know, we can't invest as much as the world does in the stock market because we need to tithe on Sundays. And that's really suffering for Christ. No, there are some people who are truly losing wife and children. And I, t- we, don't even, we can't even grasp that kind of loss and suffering. There are those who have been hung, burned, slaughtered, In ways that we have, have never, ever experienced and never will experience. And so as we study 1 Peter, anytime we make applications, please understand it's application to a very, very, um, pardon, a very blessed people. So this passage is no different. I feel like we're not going to feel the full weight of this passage, but what I do see here is a thread that's common among light sufferers like us and heavy sufferers like those who have been truly persecuted and even killed for Christ's name, and that is having to endure shame. Shame because of our faith in Christ. When I, mean, when I say shame, I mean the loss of any social credibility in the eyes of the world for the name of Jesus Christ. And in this sermon today, in this message, I want to exhort you to prepare for shame if the Lord places you in that position and rejoice if the Lord puts you in a place where you are ashamed for his name. I invite you to read along with me first Peter 4, chapter, 1 Peter 4, verse 12 through 19. The Apostle Peter writes, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice Yet, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, Let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. In this passage and throughout the book, the Apostle Peter has been preparing these congregations for suffering and trial and persecution and shame so that they don't lose their faith faith when they face those things. If they are persecuted for the name of Christ, the Apostle Peter wants to prepare them for that prospect so that they are not taken taken aback or taken off guard when these things happen. He wants to prepare them. Earlier, he says, prepare your minds for action. This passage, I want to draw out what I see as six exhortations Six exhortations that I see in this passage that are going to show us what faithful suffering is. This is for if you are going to suffer, what is faithful suffering? I think the Apostle Peter answers that very well in this passage. So I have six exhortations for you. What what should you do? How should you feel? What should be your mental and and heart posture when you are led into a time of suffering and trial? Whatever that might be. First, exhortation. First of all, expect to suffer to some degree because of your faith in Jesus Christ. The danger of the prosperity gospel is that they promise healing, success... Wealth, and they therefore are building faith on false premises. What happens then when your marriage is strained or your child gets cancer or you are shamed and you lose social credibility at work because you believe in a 2,000-year-old book? What, what happens then? What does Peter say to us? He says, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you as if something strange were happening to you. This is not uncommon. This is not something that we haven't been prepared for. Don't be surprised. Expect to be mocked. Expect to be shamed to some degree for the name of Christ. Expect to some degree to be frowned upon for the name of Christ. This is what Jesus says in John fifteen twenty. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. So throughout the, throughout the New Testament, brothers and sisters... We are told consistently to expect to suffer in some degree and in some way for the name of Christ. And we are to that suffering is a has a purifying effect on your faith and a proving effect on your faith. So Peter says, therefore, prepare your minds for action. Be ready to suffer for the name of Christ points of application on that exhortation. So if you should expect to suffer for the name of Christ this means that if you're despised and rejected in some way or shamed or embarrassed by the name of Christ publicly in some way this doesn't mean that you failed to be salt and light. Please understand that. It doesn't mean that you failed in your mission necessarily to represent Christ. This is the problem. Although I do believe we should be salt and light and we should not seek to. um, Seek to muddy the waters of Christ's name. Nevertheless, this is the problem of the, of always think saying that Christians should be winsome. If If we're constantly seeking for winsomeness, then we're never... I I fear that many who say that kind of pull the punch with speaking the truth clearly and yet in love. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world... But I chose you out of the world. Therefore, the world hates you. So again, we need to strive to be salt and light. Nevertheless, you will be hated by the world. And so this means, brothers and sisters, that you have not failed. You have not necessarily failed if the world frowns upon you, shames you publicly, And you lose any social credibility in their eyes because you're a Christian. It doesn't mean you failed. It just means, perhaps, that you're following Jesus closely. Secondly. Cancer. Embarrassment at work. losing friends because you are a Christian, any, any, anything that happens happens to you in life that, is, that brings tears and is difficult to endure, those things should not cause you to doubt your faith in Christ. Because Christ himself told you that in the world you will have tribulations, Throughout the New Testament, we are told to expect to suffer. And you may suffer because of your own inability or weakness. Like the Apostle Paul had a thorn in the flesh. You may suffer because of some circumstance outside. Like disease or just living in a natural fallen world. Or you may suffer persecution. None of those things. None of those things does Scripture hide from us. Scripture constantly tells us to expect those kinds of things. And therefore, it should not cause doubt on your faith. This has been promised and you have been told to expect to endure those things. For the name of Christ, know that the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit love you. They are there to comfort you through these things. But expect them. And do not doubt the love of God because you're going through them alright second exhortation then is to consider trials if you're suffering to consider these trials not just as meaningless difficulties but as divine tests not just meaningless difficulties but as divine tests he says beloved don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to what? To test you as though something strange were happening to you. I think we tend to view the Christian life linearly sometimes, where it, if we're more mature in Christ, perhaps we'll suffer less. Perhaps there'll be less difficulty and we'll kind of be floating because we're more mature. And, and now life has gotten easier because of our maturity in Christ. But it is true that the closer you are to God, very often the hotter the fire may burn. And so don't be surprised at the fiery trial that comes upon you to test you. The word test means to examine, to evaluate, or to prove your faith. Men use gold, Fire to purify gold. And I believe that God uses trials to purify and refine our faith and our love for him and to prove our love for him. I've made this point before earlier in 1 Peter, but throughout redemptive history, I have this list on my OneNote where God places people who are very near to him through a fire of testing. Abraham was told to sacrifice his child to go up on a mountain and do this incomprehensibly trying action of slaughtering his son. And just as he lifted the knife, he was told to stop. And what does God say? Now I know. You fear me. I want to see what he does to Israel here. I have it. Let me read Deuteronomy 8, verse 1 through 3. Here's, Here's God reflecting, Scripture reflecting on Israel's time in the wilderness. Deuteronomy 8, 1 through 3. The whole commandment that I command to you today, you shall be careful to do that you may live and multiply. And go in and possess the land that the Lord swore to your forefathers. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness. That he might humble you, testing you, just to know what was in your heart. Whether you would keep his commands or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger. And fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone. But man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. God put Israel in the wilderness to test them, to know what was in their heart. And made them hunger. Not just for bread. But for a knowledge that man does not live just by physical bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So there is a testing that God puts his people through. So I want to encourage you to reframe your mind, your mental disposition, when you're going through this difficulty which gives you no rest at night, which you wake up in the morning and constantly greets you with a frown, reframe that, not just as an unhappy circumstance, but perhaps as a divine test to know what is in your heart, as an opportunity to prove your faith and to give him praise. In the midst of that thing. First Peter 1 Peter 1.6. Talks about the salvation that we've been given. And Peter says in this you rejoice. Though now. Though now for a little while. If necessary you have been grieved. By various trials. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and honor and glory in the end. Your faith, to test the genuineness of your faith, is it what comes out of you? What comes out of me when my faith is tested by fire? Is it refined into the gold of praise? Or does grumbling and complaining and sadness and sorrow come out as if there were no hope? Let the tested genuineness of your faith result in praise. And then it will result in honor and glory when Christ returns. Third exhortation view your suffering within the framework of union with Christ. A doctrine which we love in this church. And it's not like it's just our pet doctrine. This is the deep thing, this is the mystery of God, that you are united to Christ in the gospel. That is to say that we have been invited to a symbiotic relationship with the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus so that we derive our life from his life and we will journey the path that he journeys through his power which indwells us. We are the branches, he is the vine, and the vitality that comes out of the vine flows through the branches and produces fruit. Union with Christ, I believe, is a metaphysical reality. Not just a metaphor, but a reality that the life of Christ is pulsating through you and carrying you down to death and life which is the very path that Christ himself took. So, view your suffering within the framework of Christ, verse 13, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Suffering in the name of Christ or in union with Christ means to participate in Christ's mission. Suffering in union with Christ is a kind of suffering that you endure because you are a Christian and because you are either trying to promote the gospel or defend the gospel in some way. Paul described his ministry as filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. He said, in. Colossians 1.24, I am filling up what is lacking or left over in Christ's afflictions. That is not to say the Apostle Paul thought there was atonement for sin left over. It means that when Christ ascended, he left his church suffering to participate in. And by grabbing hold of that mission, like missionaries do, Like people in the pew do when they build up the church or sacrifice in some meaningful way, you are joining the suffering that Christ has left over for the church to join. So why suffer or why rejoice rather when you are filling up this affliction? Because when you participate willfully in slander, mocking, and you endure maligning, and you lose social credibility for the name of Christ, you are on the very path of sharing his glory as well. Jesus said, blessed are you. The word translation there could be, oh, how happy are you. This is in Luke 6, 22 through 23. Twenty-three. Blessed are you when other people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. That is an... An astounding thing to say. So get this. When you are hated. Excluded. Reviled. And you are called evil. For the name of Christ. You should rejoice. And leap for joy. Why is that? Because eternity. Is right around the corner. This is a light, momentary affliction. And if you have been counted worthy to suffer for the name, counted worthy to suffer for the name now, rejoice and leap for joy because your reward is great in heaven. This is getting into what John preached about last week, living with the end in mind. Not just, not just waking up and looking down. Wake up, look up, lift your eyes to eternity. That's why you should rejoice and leap for joy. It means that you are sharing in Christ's path from suffering to glory. And I believe we should consider it a privilege to suffer for the name of Christ. Not just an opportunity, but a An honor and a privilege to suffer for Christ. Paul said he wanted to share in the koinonia of his sufferings. The fellowship of his sufferings. One commentator said, not every believer grows to the point. This is very interesting. Not every believer grows to the point where God can trust him. With this kind of experience. That is suffering for his name. So we ought to rejoice when the privilege does come. Then he quotes Acts 5.41. That the apostles departed from the presence of the council when they were beaten, beaten. And they rejoiced. That they were counted worthy to suffer for the name because they were counted worthy to suffer for the name perhaps is it possible that your maturity will lead you into a hotter flame is it possible that the suffering that Christ has left over from his church is reserved for those whom he considers worthy that would be to join the fellowship of his sufferings exhortation number 4 know the difference says we're talking about suffering and trials and know the difference and please know the difference between suffering because of your own folly and suffering because of faithfulness here is what the apostle Paul says in verse 14, If you are insulted, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or as a thief or as an evildoer or as a meddler. So if you go out and you kill your brother, That's not suffering for Christ, he's saying. If you go out and steal and are caught and you have to endure jail time, that's not suffering for Christ. If you go in and you're constantly gossiping and looking for trouble and you're a meddler and people say, what is wrong with this guy? That's not suffering for Christ either. Verse 16, yet if anyone suffers as a Christian... Let him not be ashamed, but glorify God in that name. So it is suffering specifically as a Christian for the name of Christ. And because you are a Christian, know the difference between suffering for foolishness and folly and suffering for the name of Christ. Now, I... I think it's interesting that in this passage he says in verse 14 because the spirit of glory and of god rests upon you now i struggled with this verse this that clause all week because the spirit of glory and of god rests upon you what does that mean is it because you're a christian Or is it because perhaps there is some unique comfort or manifestation of the Spirit that one is given when he joins God's mission and suffers for it? I, I believe that is the key to understanding this because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. There seems to be a peculiar down payment or manifestation upon those who have risked their necks and endured for the name of Christ. And with like martyrs and the intensity of suffering, the the sheer intensity of the suffering I can't imagine losing my family and children on the mission field, being killed for the name of Christ, burning at the stake. But I think the Lord gives you strength to endure if you are willing to enter that kind of door of suffering. I think we have an example of this in the martyrdom of Stephen. In Acts 7, I'll just read this to you. Stephen preaches the gospel and enraged the Jews in Jerusalem. In Acts 7, 54, we read, Now when they heard these things, that is the gospel, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. But Stephen... Full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God, and Jesus standing at the hand, right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens open, and the Son of Man standing at the right hand. A manifestation. He was able to see with eyes of faith in ways that we here cannot see. Look up. He was given a unique manifestation of God's presence and comfort because of what he was suffering. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. And they cast stone. He cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of Saul. And they were stoning Stephen. Imagine being, rocks being hurled at your head and your back. And Stephen called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, perhaps even looking up at Jesus Welcoming him to the kingdom, says, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Now, there is a unique power to endure, and even to endure in a Christ like fashion when he says, Do not hold this against them. That's not human. That's, that's not human. I think the Lord gives people a unique supernatural ability when they have risked their necks for the gospel and for the cause of Christ. Sometimes I've I've heard some sermons, one or two sermons is from Paul Washer. I said, that is not human to be able to preach like that. That's not natural to have that kind of passion flowing out of you. That, I think, is what it looks like to have the spirit of glory rest upon you in a unique and powerful way. Exhortation number five. Know that God is purifying the church through trials. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome of those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will happen for the ungodly and the sinner? Here, Peter is reflecting on what the whole thing he said, that whole paragraph he said. The fiery trial is refining, is the refining fire of God's judgment. And judging fires begin at the household of God. Destroying anything in its path that is not of God. This fire of judgment isn't, a, a, isn't just a condemning fire. It's a revealing fire. It burns away chaff. Or or use the gold picture. It refines gold. It burns away the impurities. That's the fire. That fire begins at the house of God and extends out into the world. And perhaps the church needs to go through this multiple times. Um, Wayne Grudem, in his commentary, writes the following. The word judgment does not necessarily mean condemnation for it's time for judgment to begin, but is a broader term, which can refer to judge to a judgment, which results in good and bad evaluations, a judgment, which may issue in approval or discipline as well as condemnation. The picture is that God has begun judging within the church and later will move outward to judge those outside the church. Very interesting. The revealing of the fire begins with the church. When the church, when the true Christians are being distinguished and enduring and the nominal Christians are falling off, it seems that there is a refining going on. Perhaps that is what's happening in the American church. Perhaps this isn't as bad as it looks after all. Maybe the Lord is refining his church. Purifying his church. Removing the chaff. Nominal Christianity has been slowly dying. Especially in this area. No one comes to church to listen to me preach for an hour because they want something to do. They really believe that the word of God is in the word, that they should be a part of a congregation, that they are called to worship God with their lives, and they are doing it out of faith and obedience. It's no longer socially advantageous to go to church, at least in this area. So the judging fire is also a revealing fire that I believe makes clear who belongs to him and what in the church is of God and not of God and if the righteous are scarcely saved that's an interesting thing to say are the righteous scarcely saved why yes they are because some will be saved as yet through fire the apostle Paul says and their works some of their works will be burned up as unholy their motivations were unpure all along. <laughs> I loved it when, when Mark got up here and he was, he just said out loud, "You know am I preaching right now for me? Or is it for am I doing this for you? I, I don't know. Be, I'll be judged. That's up for the Lord to judge. Very interesting thing to say. I've often thought about that. Our motivations are sometimes divided. And the degree to which our motivation is Christ and his glory, that's the gold. And the other stuff's the chaff. Am I preaching here? Am I, am I, are, we, are we trying to advance in this church? Am I preaching in this church to try to gain some notoriety? That's something anytime someone steps up to this pulpit or this thing here should ask themselves. I like that question. Saved is yet through fire. That's what it means that the righteous are scarcely saved. Last exhortation. Exhortation number six. So you're going to suffer. Be prepared for that. Don't think something strange is happening to you. There will be trials. Prepare your minds for action. Take it as your union with Christ... Uses an opportunity to be refined and tested by God. Know that God is purifying the church. But in all these things, know that you can run to God with your suffering. Verse 19. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Entrust your soul. To entrust means to give over something, to deposit something in the hands of another. And it means to, perhaps for some of you, and sometimes it means refrain from taking matters into your own hands, but entrust it to the Lord. Give it, hand it over to the Lord. I love the song we sang today. Jesus said, if I am weak, I can run to him. Jesus said, As if I'm lost, I can run to him. That is a beautiful truth. We don't just believe in propositions. Or we don't just believe in truth. We believe in Christ. The truth. The way and the life. So run to Jesus. With your marriage problem. Run to Jesus with your debilitating disease. Run to Jesus with the sickness of your mom. Run to Jesus, even with a cold heart. Run to Jesus with your questions. And say, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. You can always run to Jesus strong and kind. It's a great picture. A great word picture for Jesus. Strong and kind. Christianity is not willpower religion. Now, you do need to use your will. But it's not willpower religion. Run to God run to Christ and through the power of the holy spirit and through his strength and his grace do that which he has empowered you to do receive strength from his hands and trust your souls to a faithful creator while doing good so those are my six exhortations today i want to i want to end with Two, what should I call these? Theses that summarize what I've just said, very quickly. Number one, I want to double down on what I said at the beginning of the sermon. The Bible does not promise an easy Christian life. Now you heard it here, you heard it from me, you heard it from Peter. So don't go doubting, don't go questioning God it is it is ingrained in the new testament all right trust that jesus is going to allow you to go through a fiery trial or even put you through one yourself this is why jesus said the road is easy and wide that leads to destruction but it is narrow and hard that leads to eternal life do you believe that Do we really believe that? Then we we will not doubt God's goodness or his grace when we are in a place where we need to endure. Secondly, that's just my first thesis. Don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes on you to test you. Secondly, when the fiery trial does come to test you, weep but then rejoice, rejoice, but rejoice in so far as you share Christ's sufferings in this you rejoice though. Now you've been grieved for a little while by various trials, brothers and sisters, eternity, the door to eternity is 40 years away. At least for my life. The door to eternity for some of you is 60 years away. For some of you, it is 10 years away. The door to forever is open and ready to be unlocked for you. Rejoice. Do not grieve as those who have no hope. Jesus says everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. So don't lose heart. Your outer self is wasting away, but your inner self is renewed day by day. Don't look to the things that are seen Look to the things that are unseen, and you will receive the unfading crown. And you will be with Christ and the Father and the Spirit in a place where every tear is finally wiped away. So rejoice and keep the end in mind. Keep eternity before your eyes. The door to eternity is just around the corner. And the things of this earth will go strangely dim thereafter. Let's close in a word of prayer.